Good morning and happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. And if it's your first time visiting us, welcome. And if you've been visiting us for a while, welcome also. And for those who are joining us online, thank you for being faithfully a part of ASDAQ's family. Despite the distance, you have been faithfully participating. I know our faithful friend from the North America, he's always like the first or second to join us. Welcome. Happy Sabbath. So we are at a place where where COVID is seemingly going to stay with us for a little while. You know, we are looking at a situation where this gathering in person at church will not move beyond this number, I think, for a little bit more. Um, Just yesterday, the announcement of the Chinese New Year visitation, you know, you're not going to be allowed to visit more than two families uh, a day, and one household can only receive eight unique guests. I, I love how they put the word there every single day. So it's a sign. It's a sign that we're going to still got a little while to go until the vaccination and all this safety measure comes into place. But good news, despite the, the, the difficulties, dif- despite the challenges, we still have people joining the church and becoming a part of the Aztec family. Next week, we're going to have a profession of faith where one of our sister, Nancy, is going to join the church. She's been going through studies. She was first brought to the church by Uncle Albert, and uh, later on she participated in our brother Seth's uh, Sabbath afternoon small group, and then later on uh, Roger took over when Seth had to leave and go back to his home country, and she's gone through the studies, and uh, I met up with her, and she's decided to to join this church. She was baptized previously uh, already, so she's just going to, Come join the church, be a part of the church through profession of faith. So we're glad that that's going to happen next Sabbath. Next Sabbath. God is still bringing lambs into the family despite the challenges. And also, we're not going to just sit and wait until God uh, do His miracle. God is already working His miracle, in fact. Uh, We're not going to wait till the rules relax for more people to gather together as an Aztec community. We can gather in different locations. And we are in the process of talking and negotiating and working through uh, different arrangements. And right now, we're looking at two potential sites. One is right near Bunking MRT, and the other is right at Clark Key MRT, the Purple Line, right? We call it the Purple Line strategy. We're going to have different sites where you can gather together uh, for worship every Sabbath. So you're not only going to be restricted to 798 Thompson Road, you'll be allowed to participate in other sites where one of then will be Bunking MRT and the other one, Clock Key. But to get those sites up and running, we will need really committed people to be coordinators at these two sites. We're looking at a minimum of two individuals for each of these sites for the rest of the year. For the rest of the year. We need to get this going. So we need somebody who can commit, can commit consistently to one of these sites Uh, for the rest of the year, because we are not sure how it works. We've never done this before. We need consistency, permanency, and we need people to be committed, because if the two volunteers don't show up, that space is not available. Like, you need someone to open the doors, manage the place, and so we're asking for volunteers. See, the potential for these two sites is this. We'll be able to, at first, we're going to trial this, uh, have eight attendees follow, uh, attend these two sites, and so there'll be a total of 10 at each site, that's 20 more people than what we have today. 
they can meet physically together. Of course, we're gonna, the space is, is not a house, not a home, so we can do more with those spaces. It's very unique where it's a combination of a household and a, a different commercial space. So we can have the potential of having 20 people or even more at each of these sites. So there's 40 of you who can meet on Sabbath as a group that is not just at 798. So the format, the format, I li- like what Daniel Kim said. He said the perks, the perks of these sites is this, right? You'll be able to meet together in person for Sabbath school. You'll be able to meet in person for Sabbath school. And as I said, potentially go up to 20, but we're going to start with about 10 people at each of these sites. In-person Sabbath school, then we're going to stream in to life worship, come worship together, a sense of unity, a sense of belonging to the same family. And then, because you're at this side, you're not in the church building, you can do something that we cannot do. You can have potluck together. You can have potluck together. So you can bring your dishes, come together and share together, and that will expand uh, our presence and uh, allow us to meet uh, in different, different spots. And, you know, I hope that this will continue to expand, that maybe some of you will open up your homes and, and, and uh, or other sites will become available that we can have more and more and more and more people meeting. And then, and then it comes one day when you say, hey, you want to go to SDAG? And people say, where is SDAG? Say, Any MRT station along Purple Line, you can come to church. Yeah, that would be an awesome day when that happens. Because God has shown us that having a lot of people gathering in one singular geographical location may not be the way we, we move forward. This COVID, I'm not sure how long it's going to be, but it's a reminder from God that, hey, stop just meeting in one place. Go. Go beyond the walls that we have here. Okay? And so to, to cement some of these decisions, I invite you to join in, if you're a member of the SDAC Church, join in in our church business meeting. Join our church business meeting next, next week at 8 p.m. via Zoom. So you can join us wherever you are. And we'll be discussing some of these new directions because we can't do church as business as usual. It's not going to come back. Um, and we don't want it to come back. We want to go move forward to something different something different. So come and join in the meeting as I'll be sharing some of these ideas and some of these things in detail. And we're going to come together as a church, decide together. Because this church does not belong to Pastor James. This church belongs to all of you who are members of this church. And you have a say in how this church will move forward. Because the church is made of God's people, not by cement walls, but by warm bodies, followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus. So I invite you 8 p.m. next week, if you are a member of this church, Participate in the meeting. We'll talk more then. So we're going through the series of James Daydreaming, or the seven dreams I have for this church. And today's title is called Dreaming of Power. You know, when I was in Andrews University, this is the dorm that I will spend a lot of my time in. I don't live in this dorm. This dorm is called the Meyer Dorm. And this dorm is 40 years old, and the plumbing has not been changed. It's a horrible place. Uh, but uh, that dorm is uh, right across. So where this view of this dorm is exactly my view from where I live. I live in a house that's across the view from this dorm. And so when I was studying um, for my theology degree, I went there and uh, me and my friends, my classmates, and we said, we're going to go and reach out to the students there. You assume that if you're in a Christian institution, that everybody believes in Jesus. That is not true. We discovered that in the population of about two to 3,000 students, there's about 10 to 15% who are not followers of Christ. And in fact, on top of that, there are people who are followers of Christ, but once they leave their family and come to school, they have stopped attending church, even though church is the building right beside this building. 
And uh, so we, we had a mission. And so what we do, there's about three floors to this Myers dorm. It's the boys' dorm. And between the, the, the pastoral staff, the classmates, we'll go and knock on each and every door every Sabbath afternoon and check on how they're doing. Check on how they're doing. And so we developed this strategy where we'll, we'll have the blueprint of all the rooms and we'll, we'll check them off and say, so this guy is attending church. He's doing fine. This guy is uh, in a small group. This guy's been Bible says, but oh, this guy's not attending church, not connected. Let's work on him. Let's visit him. Let's, let's care for him. And then we'll go through that. And we, we formulated a strategy where we're very efficient. And every Sabbath afternoon, we were there. And because of that, that, that commitment from the whole team, uh, the gathering that we started with, about 15 of us, became 150 within two years. And so we, we realized that, wow, this is such an awesome, awesome thing that we're doing. It's as though we, we have learned the skills of, of trying to reach campuses. But it's a lie, right? It's a lie. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of reality. When we walk across, it's not all sunny and nice, right? This is actually the, the real look of that place for the most of the year. The sunny photo is like maybe one week of the year, and then they took it on that day. But this is where we actually, this is another dorm. This is called a Maplewood uh, house, uh, Housing. This is for the graduate students. This is where we live. Most of us live, but I didn't live there, thankfully. But uh, this is where my classmates live, and the snow covers up your car. It covers up the floor. So the, the walk that just now made to you seem like a, a 5 minutes walk actually takes about 10 to 15 minutes because you're walking through snows that's up to knee-deep. Every week, and I think that's part of like the pilgrimage. As we walk to the dorm, the students see this bunch of crazy pastors who walk to the dorm every Sabbath afternoon, and I think because of that, they open their doors. It's like wow, they put took all the effort to come here, and so in a way, you feel like you've earned the right to enter their room and share Jesus with them. But throughout the years, there's also one thing we realize that there is this tension that you get to a place where you feel like it's because of our commitment to the work, it's because of our good strategies because of our, our willingness to walk through the knee-deep snow and because we found a, a vernacular, a good way of communicating the gospel that these people are coming to Jesus. And it's easy to feel like, wow, God has blessed me with the gifts of evangelism that I can reach these people. But then this, the tension of this next verse I'm going to share with you come into mind. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, has a verse there that seemingly uh, is like there's nothing really important there, but if you read it in, in, in attention, you pay folk, uh, attention to it, there's something there that, that challenges you as a, a disciple of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Working together with Him, with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is Paul talking about the Corinth church and about how the gospel has been brought to them. But Paul was very humble in describing himself. And he says that I am working together with God. I am working together with God. And so here comes the tension. When we're working in the dorms at Andrews University, there comes to a point where we almost think that we're working by ourselves and God was just blessing the work. We forget that at, at the end of the day, the conversion of hearts, that the transformation of lives was a, a, a work that was a togetherness, that we're working together with God in the winning of soul. Then the question comes, what part do I play? And what part does God play? 
when we're working together, you know, we seem to like take the credit. The pastor who's preaching from the stage, is it because of my awesome communication, my sermon that you have come to know Jesus more or is God doing the work? What does it mean as a disciple of Jesus to work together with God? Is it because I've been committing to doing the work, consistently dedicating my life, being faithful to it, that it yearns results? Or is there something more? So as a church, as, as that, we need to think about what does it mean for the church to exist and where does our power come from? Growing up in a, as a youth ministry leader, you know, there was this huge thing, huge thing. And I was just chatting with Kelly this morning about this thing about being, uh, being relevant, being relevant, about how you must make worship service something that is palatable, that people would like. And I remember, uh, people know where church I'm coming from, so I'm not even going to hide. You know, I remember when I was a youth leader in Thompson Chinese Church, there was a huge fight. Huge fight for just bringing a cajon to our worship service. Like, it was huge. It was like I got summoned to church business meetings to, like, explain myself. And I, my explanation will always be, we need to be relevant. We need to be something that people can uh, connect with and understand and there was talk about how the chair should be, should be put and how, how where the pastor should stand, how he should dress, where, where this pulpit should be round or square or brown or black. There was talk about the carpet colors, the curtain colors, the air condition, how cold it should be, how hot it should be. Like, really? We were seeking to be relevant and speak on topics that people understand instead of being too deep in Bible studies. That was always the contention. Too, too, too general, too deep, too boring, too overly exciting. There's all this contention. But relevance, relevance was, is, is never a thing that's ever mentioned in the Scripture. I'm not saying that we should turn off all our aircon and just turn on, open the window. We tried that. I remember I preached through that and my shirt was soaked. That's distracting. You can't listen when it's like so crazy hot. And at that point, if you open the door, the army of commando mosquitoes will come in and devour us. It's a lot better now. So of course, there's the sudden, like you don't want to put multicolor walls at the back where it's like flashing in multicolor throbbing light and everybody get fits. That's not useful either. And you don't want music that's too loud that people can't listen or too soft that you can't hear anything. All these things are important, but it, it is not the basis of the church. One thing that I learned real, uh, throughout this time of the COVID of doing a lot of Zoom is one new discovery is that how many cables you can have and how different the cables are. For those who don't know, the latest trend in cables is called the Type-C cable. You know, last time it's the USB, and then there's the micro-USB, meaning USB, da da da, da. Now it's Type-C. All cables are the same. They, they plug in, they charge my phone and charge my laptop, right? No, they don't. The supposedly power 
this cable can take up to a certain number of power. This, you know why I realized that? Because I realized that sometimes I'll just grab one of my phone, the cable I used to charge my phone, I plug it into my computer, and it doesn't charge. And I'm in the middle of like sometime of the Zoom, then I realized that it didn't charge. Because I assumed that because I plugged in the cable, my laptop will be charged. But then like three quarters through the meeting, the, the warning comes, 15% battery left. And then I'm hosting the meeting. So if I go out of the battery, the meeting stops and everybody gets knocked down. And I'm frantically looking for another cable. Like, why isn't my cable working? Is it my computer? And I realized I didn't use the laptop charging cable. Then there's the adapter. Not all adapt adapters are created equal. Some adapter will charge my laptop. Some will not. Some will charge if I don't use Zoom. Some will charge even though I'm using Zoom. Oh my goodness. So annoying. Power source is important. What are you using to power your equipment today is so obvious. You need to know what you're using. The church, the church, the church. What have we been powering the church with? What have we depended on all this time? And I tell you, if you, if you buy books that's written from 1990, all the way to 2010, you will tell, you will hear the church that the church has to be relevant in order to win souls for Jesus. These are books written by theologians, pastors, and all these people telling you the church must be relevant, it must connect. But let us turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and see what the scripture actually says powers the church. Romans 1, 16. Key verse that transformed the whole Church, because Martin Luther was on his knees, climbing up the, the stairs as a, as a way of earning and saying sorry for his sin. And he was in chains and he was torturing himself and he was reading the scripture in Latin. And he came to Romans. See, he's privileged because he's a priest that he could read the scripture. Non-priests at that point in time were not allowed to touch the word of God because it's too holy for common people. And so as he was on his knees, as he was climbing up the stairs with his knees, he read this verse or this passage and this specific verse he's in verse 16, chapter 1 of Romans says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Then he goes on to say, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And after reading this verse, he got up from his knees and says, this is the word of God. That I do not earn my way to God through my action, through what I do, to what I not do, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm afraid that the church who, who stand from then, the, the Protestant movement, the evangelical church today has come to the point where we've gone full circle back that we think that people come to salvation by what we do. By the preaching of the pastor, by the awesome worship, by the worship team, which is awesome, by the great prayers that's being led, by the small group strategy that you have, by the good Bible study materials you do, that we've come back to being legalistic about how people will gain access to Jesus. The righteous 
shall live by faith. And the righteous gains righteousness by the power of God. By the power that is in the gospel. He tells us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because what? The gospel is what? It is the power of God. For salvation, it is not in anything else that they will, will find power. It is not in gathering together on Sabbath that we'll find power. It is not even found in relationships we have with one another, although as beautiful as it is. It will reveal to the world our love for one another that we are disciples of Jesus, but that will also still not save people. It will only reveal to them that these group people have something else. But it's only in the power of the gospel that people will be brought to salvation. And just to add another note, relevance doesn't mean contemporary. Because by being relevant, some people's relevance means that we must sing hymns in church. We must follow a specific set of liturgy. We must, for some churches, the pastor must wear a certain way of dressing. Those are in a way also called relevance. Because it's relevant to your understanding of how church should be. I was once invited to conduct a wedding for a non-Aventist couple, and they they requested, Pastor, is it okay? I said, what is it okay? Is it okay to wear like the priestly kind of thing to do our wedding? I'm like, sure. It's not like I will be sent to hell or like fired from the church for wearing that. But why do you want that? So it feels more like a real wedding. I say, according to the movies, yes. That's relevance. I have that. It's quite cute. I didn't know that it's actually a thing that you actually stick between the collar. It's not a gen. It's a specific kind of thing. I have to get it. But have anybody ever asked what that even means? I know. I won't tell you. Go find out. What is relevance? It could be how you're used to church. That church is being at church at 9.30 for Sabbath school to about 10.59.59 seconds, and then you rush into the auditorium, and the worship starts at 11, and the sermon better end by 12.15. And then after that, we get together for potluck, and the potluck has to end by 1.30 because after that, there's other stuff happening. That could be relevance. It could be just what you're used to, what your habit is, what you, what you want, but those are not the power that a church should depend on. It will not sustain the church. And this COVID has shown us clearly that one, suddenly, one day, all these things can be taken away. And then where is your power, church? The gospel. And power ultimately is a discussion of control. It's a discussion of how things are managed. And when we talk about the power of the church, we're saying what are the things we are in control of and what are the things that we do not have control of. And in a way, for the longest time, the church has tried to control how somebody comes to know Jesus. You have to go through that process. You have to go through this specific, jump over specific fences to know God. But the true power the church possesses is the power to let go 
of control. By holding on, you will not go anywhere. It's only by letting go that you can see the boat move. One of the things that you learn if you ever go try uh, wind sailing, sailing is that there are times where you need to let go of the rope. You know, you want the boat to go in a certain direction. You, you pull the rope and try to yank the mast to go this direction. But there comes to a point where it's better to flow with the wind than fight the wind. Because if you're trying to sail against the wind in a sailboat, you're in the wrong instrument. You maybe need to go get a steam cruiser or a machine speedboat to drive against the wind. But if you're in a sailboat, you flow with the wind. And I think for the longest time, the church has been trying to yank the rope against the wind and sail against it. And we've not gone anywhere. But the, 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 the gospel, the scripture, God is telling us sometimes let go. Let the sail turn according to the wind and then hold it in place and sail where the wind leads you. You may get to your direction faster. It may take longer. You may have to take a detour, but you will get to where you want instead of remaining in the same place. I, I had that experience one time where we were going out canoeing. So in the canoeing was, uh, we were canoeing against, against the tide and way, and we form a raft when you hold each other and you form a straight road to rest. And so that there was a particularly bad day because the wave was really rough, the wind was rough. We were canoeing, trying to get to Salita Island. And so we set off and we were, we, we were, we were paddling, 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 paddling. And then we, we took a break at about after 15 minutes of paddling and we held each other's canoe and we formed a raft and then only to discover, hey, we're still at the same spot. We've been canoeing for 15 minutes and we're still at the exact same spot. And then we say, let's try again another 10 minutes. We canoe for another 10 minutes. Usually the entire journey takes about 15 minutes. So after like 30 minutes of trying, we realized we were still at the same spot. So that's a decision to make. Do we try for another 30 minutes or you change direction and go sideways instead of going straight ahead? Thankfully, we have a very experienced person who kept quiet to this point because he was trying to teach us a lesson and he spoke out. He said, let's go right. And we're like, but the island's there. He said, let's go right. All right, let's go right. And then as we go right, we realized the wave was pushing us. It was much easier to paddle the canoe and then we swung all the way back and guess where we landed on the island? At the back of the island in about 15 minutes. The church has to stop fighting the power God has given to the church. But sometimes I think that the power that is given can be misused. Like electricity, if it's used well, can light up a bulb, but if, it's done, if you don't use it well, it can electrocute a person. Like a volcano can be a destructive force, but without volcanoes, Hawaii would not exist. And there could be a strong person who uses his time and energy to build up his body, to make it strong, or he uses his strength to beat up another person. Power is powerful for a specific reason, and it has to be directed and controlled by the right person or thing. You and I are not the best steward of power. Continuously, the church over this past year and a year before have shown that when human beings try to take control of this power given to the church, it ends badly. It ends really, really badly. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. 
who believes. To the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Do you realize, do you hear what the verse is saying? The verse is saying that we should not be ashamed of the power of God. And it is given to everyone who believes. They say, all right, here we go. That's my role. I'm supposed to make somebody believe. Then they can experience the power of God. And again, the power drives the entire machine, not just aspects of it. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that the key struggle we have is not whether we're trying to be in control, but it's that more often than not, our real struggle is that we're ashamed of the gospel. It could be in different ways. We're ashamed of the gospel when we actually feel like if I share the gospel, like even, it's really weird. I was 30 years old, I was in the dorms, and these kids are like 18, 19 years old. But there'll be at times where I feel like I don't want to share the scripture too strongly because I'll be offending them and they won't like me very much after that. I was actually thinking about myself. That, they, that Pastor James will not be cool anymore if he shares the gospel too strongly. That could be one of the shame, being ashamed of the gospel. I overcame that. I didn't share the gospel rudely or obnoxiously, but of course, I spoke, tried my best to speak clearly. But sometimes being ashamed of the gospel is the fact that you rely on something else except the gospel. Back to the same idea that the church has been ashamed of the gospel by, by trying to rely on our relevance, by trying to rely on our building, by trying to rely on our strategy, by trying to rely on our resources to win souls for God. Continuously, there seems to be this mindset that if somebody needs to be won to Jesus, they need to be brought before the pastor. Again and again, they'll be like, somebody will bring somebody who needs to know Jesus and say, Pastor, this person wants to know Jesus. And then they'll be like, I'll be like, why? Don't you know Jesus too? No, I'm not good at explaining Jesus. See, we depend on our explaining to bring somebody to Christ. But the scripture tells us that it's not in the explaining. It's not in the communication. It's not even in the knowledge of the Bible that you come to know Christ. It's the gospel. And so you're asking yourself right now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? I will not talk about it just yet, but I'll read you a quote from Christopher Benek. Uh, he's, a, he's a technology guy who specifically um, creates technology or supports churches with technology. And he was a nobody before COVID. And suddenly COVID threw him into the limelight because every church in North America want, needed his help. There were so many churches who was not technical technically ready for not being able to gather at church. And so he was able to go to, I think, about three, 400 churches in just last year. And so at the end of his time with all these 400 churches, setting up the church for worship and uh, helping them last through COVID, this is his comment. He says, we have turned many churches into nothing more than glorified entertainment clubs that numb the self-inflicted pain of pride and greed and instead of helping people develop a new hermeneutic of life and ultimate meaning in this technological age, we perpetrate insufficient theology that leaves people feeling helpless and without hope. And that's not specific to any denomination, any church group, any, he, any church size. He was in all kinds of churches. He sat through all kinds of sermons for, for, for the whole last year. 
And he himself was trained theologically before. And he's never pastored a church, but in sitting there as a member, as a, as a worshiper, this is his comments on the current state of church. We don't give our people an opportunity to experience the power of God personally. You almost have to be ministered through the minister. Corey Hartman said, another, another uh, uh, theological writer, he says, the gospel is not meant to draw a crowd. That's not the ultimate goal of the power of the gospel. The gospel is meant to be given to the crowd we already have. See, that's one thing the gospel is challenging us to do, is to not focus on bringing crowds to a specific location and allowing the engine that we've created to win them to Jesus. In his book, he writes that everywhere we are, see, the crowd is already there. So this, this space here, Esdeg, at our peak, we can hold about 176 people, maybe maximum. Let's say 180. If we have three or four or five services, we can have the most about 1,000 people in this building. But if I add up the amount of people you come into contact with every single day, It'd be in more than 1,000. Maybe in the two, three, four, five thousand. You already have the crowd. And our goal should no longer be trying to bring the crowd to a space they're not comfortable with and try then using that, that space to win them to Jesus. God has sent you who have already experienced the gospel out into the crowd. You look continuously in the scripture. Jesus never invited people to a space. He went to the crowd. The crowd follow him later, yeah, there are 5,000 of them follow him, and then another 4,000 of them follow him, not because he says, come follow me, but because they know he has the gospel. But continuously, he was walking and walking. If you read the gospel, it's a description of a man with 12 others walking around. And in Singapore term, jalan-jalan. Every chapter is just jalan-jalan. He walked from here to there, there to there, there to there. And then he's talking about stories that he experienced. It's almost like our Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long's Instagram. Every time you see it, he's jalan jalan. He'll have the tag, jalan jalan. I was in Amokyo Hawker Centre today. I spoke to the store owner. Maybe they know something that we don't as the church. That the key to winning hearts is actually jalan jalan. Go out and go for a walk. In fact, we don't even have to go for a walk because we already have people who are seated around us. Ask yourself, who do you eat lunch with for the rest, uh, past whole week? Maybe by yourself, some of you. But who do you see more? Do you, there are some of you who see more of these people than your family members. Those are your colleagues. Those are your clients. Those are your patients. Those are classmates, your friends. And in that connection, in, in, in interacting with them, did they experience the gospel? Did they get a glimpse of the gospel? Not because of your communication, but because you were ready to be used at that moment in time. You don't have to forcefully drag them to this place. You don't even have to drag them to the new sites we are creating. They should come because they want to worship. There are people who already believe, and they come to believe because you've already allowed God to use you in your word. Wherever you are, you are already among the crowd. You don't need to bring the crowd anywhere else. So ask yourself this week as we ponder about the crowd, where do you live? 
your neighbors? Do you even know the names upstairs, downstairs, side, left, right? And some of you live with them for 40 years, maybe. That's my ex-owner of my house. She's lived there since the beginning of time. Like the HD was built and then she lived there until I bought it from her in 2015. That's a long time. She bought the house in 1970s. Everybody knew I moved in because they knew she's gone. She's like, you're new, right? You're level five? I'm like, how do you guys know? Oh, because the auntie lived there forever. She lived there before we live here. Oh. And some of you have lived in your place for that long. And do you even know people around you? Do they even know the power of the gospel? Where do you work and where do you play? The crowd lives there, not here. Why do we come here and try to make friends with strangers we don't know when already God has given you friends that need to know who Jesus is? So again, back to the question that you're still thinking, what is the gospel? So next week, I'll be talking about what is the gospel because the gospel is not something I want to quickly rush through. And I'll take a break from my seven dreams, a little detour for one Sabbath to talk about what is the gospel. And I invite the praise and worship team to lead us in the closing song.